Hello, Bookstew viewers and listeners. It's August 1st, and I have a really exciting guest and book to talk to you about today. It's a novel, and it's not really like anything I've ever either read or introduced you to on the show before, so I'm really excited um, about sharing this with you. First, I'm going to share a piece of uh, what Annette, Binder, my guest, wrote in LitHub, which is kind of a literary, bloggy, email-y, website type of thing. And she's talking about her book, The Vanishing Sky, which we're going to talk about today. It wasn't easy setting aside my comforting stack of books and looking at a blank computer screen. I was scared. I never bungee jumped or parachuted, but sitting at the keyboard, was pretty much how I would imagine it would feel to sit in the open belly of a plane waiting for your turn to leap. But here's the thing I figured out at some point during my first draft. The only things I need to know are my characters, and the only way to get to know them is the writing. It's as simple and as hard as that. If I didn't start writing, they'd never have the chance to tell me what happens in their story. Isn't that like the smartest thing? It's almost like instinctual, like we should know it as readers and writers should know it, but I never heard anybody say it like that before. So uh, welcome to the woman who wrote those <laughs> words. Welcome to Annette Binder, who is the author of The Vanishing Sky, which is, it, I'm almost speechless in trying to describe this because it's a novel, yet there's a lot of history behind it. And um, it seems to be such a personal story, even though it's not a memoir. So um, let's start with your family background and, as, and how, that how that reflects in the book. Oh, thank you, Eileen. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, both of my parents were German, uh, and I was born in Germany. We all came together to the United States uh, in the early 70s, when I was five and a half. And my father, in particular, was very tight-lipped about his life in Germany and never really told me anything about his childhood. And so when I started writing fiction, I knew very little about him. Uh, he'd passed away when I was 16, before I'd even thought of asking him about his life. And it wasn't until I started writing this book and researching my own family history that I found out a little bit about his story, uh, that he was required to serve in the Hitler Youth and that he tried to run away from his post much like one of the characters in the novel ends up doing. How did you find, so you, you knew, I'm sure, something about your background because um, you must have been wondering, even as a, a little kid, why did you leave Germany and move to the United States? How did you find out more about your father's background? My mother was really my main source of information. Uh, I'd come across a photograph of him wearing a Hitler Youth uniform. And even though I should have known that he'd been in the Hitler Youth, and it shouldn't have been a surprise, because it was compulsory at that point in the war for pretty much all boys his age, it was still a shock to see him in that uniform. And so I went to my mother, and for the first time, she really started opening up and telling me about what she knew from him about his life, about his father, who was a school teacher, much like the father in the book, uh, who had very high expectations for both his sons. And my father, unlike his older brother, had a really hard time living up to those expectations and just chafed under what was um, really required of him during his teens. And so once I found out everything I could from my mother, from my aunt, 
my father's baby sister, uh, who had transcribed some journals from my great-grandfather. Uh, there was nothing left to find out. Everyone who had any first-hand knowledge was long gone. And so that's when I realized, you know what, fiction, fiction will give me a way to imagine the stories that he never really had the chance to tell me. Plus, it, I think it, it gives you a chance to really open up the story. If, if it's a memoir and you're kind of bound by facts, fact-checking, oh, I can't put this street in because someone will send me an email and say, that wasn't the name of the street. The name mm -hmm. of the street ended in an E. So I think, um, but it also gives you a chance to expand the characters, the universe. But I think uh, the basic, what I took first from the book that kind of shocked me was what we learn about Germany, about Nazis, is that my impression, and I'm thinking of you know the sound of music, I'm thinking of cabaret, of all the popular uh, culture, indicates that everyone in Germany was uh, a Sieg Heiling, enthusiastic Nazi. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, never occurred to me that there were Germans who basically weren't and basically went along to get along to survive. How, like, is that how, what was your impression of Germany growing up as a German-American? Wow. Uh, you know, I think there's this tendency to flatten history. And so my impression of Germany was, I think, the same impression that people have, which is that you were either one of those people at the rallies, Siegheiling, or you were one of the very rare heroic people who risked everything in order to save people or defy the regime. and as I researched the book and as I thought about it and as I talked to people, I really grew into sort of trying to unflatten that history and look at what it might have been like for ordinary people living under the regime, trying to resist sometimes or not, trying to accommodate in other cases, and how people could have differences of opinion even within a family, you know, how people could love each other, could still disagree about how to proceed and what was right. And so it gave me a chance to explore what it was like to live under this horrible regime for people who weren't the Oskar Schindlers, but they also weren't the people who were gung-ho at the rallies. What was it like trying to navigate and survive under those sorts of circumstances? Did you ever feel as, as growing up any prejudice against you as a German? You know, it's so funny that you uh, asked that. No one has asked me that before. And one of my first memories when we moved to the United States, we moved to Colorado, and uh, we had a little ranch house. And I was five and a half, like I said, and I was exploring the sort of rocks and everything. And the neighbor boys, our neighbors were about five years older than me, so I'm guessing they were 10 or so. They said, the Nazis are here, the Nazis are here. And I went into the house, and I told my mom and dad, we're not the only ones moving in. The Nazis are moving oh in, too. Oh, my goodness. And I don't remember how my father reacted, but I remember my mother's face. And I knew I'd so, said something terrible, but I didn't know what it was, because, of course, I had no idea what the Nazis were. You know, And so I think it wasn't unusual in the 70s and 80s for the bad guys, when kids were still playing pretend, to be the Nazis and to be called a Nazi. And you know, after a while, you just sort of shake it off. You know, I mean, you can't really fight. Did it make you curious at all about what, what a Nazi was? And then you're in school, you're studying history, you're learning about World War II. 
How did that affect you? You know, I think, I can't speak for all German-Americans or all Germans, uh, but I think you have a very, at least I had a very complicated relationship with my Germanness, And I really, my, my mother would speak to me in, in German and I would answer in English, always. And it just infuriated her. And she made sure I learned German. She took me to German at the local high school when I was still in junior high much to my chagrin. I hated it. Now I'm grateful. You know, but I had a very complicated relationship because I really thought of the Germans in every respect as the bad guys. And anytime you wanted a villain in any movie from the 80s or even the 90s, you just slap a German accent on them and you were done. You know, I'm thinking of like, you know, Die Hard and all those movies. Yeah. And so I think it was just something I didn't really, I wasn't really particularly into being German or German-American. I was, I was American. I answered in English. I would distance myself from it. Is that still, is it difficult to be proud of having German ancestry at this point? I, I wouldn't say I'm proud of it at all. I think it's just part of myself and now I've, I've sort of accepted all my background and sort of where I come from and my mother's memory has started to fail. And oh. so I'm speaking more and more German to her now because she really loves that. And in some ways, I feel like we've come full circle uh, because now sometimes she'll speak to me in English and I'll speak to her in German. So we've oh. exactly reversed, you know? But I'm at sort of peace with my background and my family history and, and all aspects of it. And I, I feel like I'm, at ease with it in a way that I was not when I was a teenager. I'll bet that was not necessarily an easy change to have to have come about. Um, tell us about your mother and what her experience was. Now she was, was she also uh, living in Germany during the war? Yes, both my parents were from adjoining villages in southern Germany, um, right on the Main River. And she, my mother was younger than my father. Uh, she is, she would have been around five and a half at the end of the war, but I had so many wonderful hours just talking to her and learning what she remembered. Uh, she remembers the surrender and people putting the white sheets out the windows. Mm -hmm. She remembers the American GIs coming through and being very kind to the children and giving them some of the rations, some of the lemon candies. And, you know, my mother saw her first orange and banana, um, right at the end of the war because things were so scarce that the idea of an orange even now is very precious to her. And how old was she when you when you all moved to Colorado? Well, they had moved to Colorado previously and then back to Germany. When we all moved together, she would have been in her mid-30s. Oh, so she went back and then came back. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about the family that you portray in The Vanishing Sky? So we know that um, the young son who is one of the main narrators, there are two narrators, the mother and the, the young son. Um, how did you develop these characters based on what your mother had talked about, you finding your father's, uh, some of your father's journals and that picture of him, which sounds very important because I know you said his eyes look dead and that would be uh, a pretty remarkable revelation for you. I mean, yes. when you see pictures of your family when they're younger, it's always kind of weird, but that would have been like an arrow through your heart, I it, bet. It was stunning because it was a photo album 
that showed him in his younger years where he was mischievous and playful and a little bit impish, you know, just a little troublemaking boy. And then the last photograph in that section of the album was the one in his Hitler Youth uniform. And the sadness in his eyes was just palpable. And it was a sadness that I knew, even from his adulthood. Um, and so it began, the wheels started to turn, like maybe this was part of why he was so solemn and always seemed sort of sad to me as an adult. Maybe part of that was coming from his childhood. But yes, the mother, Etta, in this book really is the heart of the book in so many ways. And she came to me first. And so I had written about 20 pages with Etta and her husband, Josef, and their older son, Max, who's home from the Eastern Front. And Etta doesn't know it yet, but he's in the midst of a mental breakdown as a result of what he's experienced uh, fighting in the East. And that was when I set it aside for a little while to research my family history. And when I saw that photograph of my own father in the Hitler Youth uniform, I realized there was one more character missing. There was a younger brother. And that's when Georg, the, young, the younger brother in the Huber family, came to me. And really, in every piece of fiction that I've ever written, I just live with the characters for a little while and just imagine their world. Before I even start working on the keyboard, I just imagine what it would have been like for them. And so once Georg, the younger son, came to me, I had to sit with him for a little while before I started writing the next section. I think the dual narrators was very, very effective because you had an adult, um, Etta, and then you had a young boy who was constrict conscripted into Hitler Youth when he was 13 years old and he goes, so the book is set in the, basically in the final year mm -hmm. of the war in mm -hmm. 1945, and what they both go through is incredible, but to see it through the eyes of a child, and a child that is absolutely forced to be grown up and cynical because of, you know, where, the situation that he's in, where, I mean, he has like, no one except his mother is, mm -hmm. on, and, and you know, an occasional friend within the Hitler Youth, but you know, you know these are not gonna be lifelong friends because everybody gets killed, so. Yeah. Um, why don't we, um, why, don't, why don't you read for us um, from the book because um, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want listeners and viewers to think that, that this is like, it's not a depressing read as much as it is just a character study, um, absolutely instructive about what the lives of regular of just regular German people were like, but also that um, the people in the book could remember joyful times. Um, so um, I thought this was a good passage to share. No, absolutely, and I think you're right. I mean, it's about resilience and it's about family under very difficult circumstances, but I don't think of it as a, an absolutely horribly sad book you know because there's love and I think as long as there's there's love and there's the sort of memory of better times it buoys you uh, through even the most difficult of situations so this is uh, relatively late in the book and Georg has made his way back to the city of Würzburg which is very close to his hometown and he's he's getting closer and closer to home and he's back in the city that he has memories of from before and Max is Georg's older brother, so that is what he's remembering right now. 
Max had lived in a tiny apartment near the university, and every time Georg visited him, the books were piled high on the table and on the floor beside his bed. Botany and biology and chemistry with its strange reactions, all those books they tugged at Georg, who would have been happy just to stay in that cramped room and read beside the window. But Max took him to all the places he loved best, the Ring Park with its flower beds and the markets on Domstrasse, and once they went to the residence palace with its scrolling mirrors and tapestries, and they lay on their backs to look at the ceiling frescoes until the guard chased them out. Everywhere they went, Max saw people he knew. Other boys from the university and professors and girls in sundresses who stopped to chat with him, and they blushed and held their books against their chests. One of the girls meant more to him, Georg could tell from how Max greeted her. A tall girl with strawberry blonde hair. Her name was Clara, and he bought her a bottle of Fanta, and they walked together, the three of them. They walked for hours in the sun. The trolleys were running to the squares, and the vendors sold their fruits and flowers, and young people were everywhere. They sat on the benches and at outdoor cafes. They played soccer in the park and read books on the grass, and the world was waiting for Georg, for all of them. This is your city too, Max had told him. You'll be here soon enough, and the professors won't know what to do with you. Keep your nose in the books, and you'll know as much as they do. He set his arm around Georg's shoulder, and Georg felt so grown up just then, and he stood a little taller as he walked beside his brother. I just love that part because in the rest of the book, Max and Georg are completely separated. They never, they never see each other, and, and they're not together. And the overwhelming desire of Etta is just to have her boys and her family home with, with mm -hmm. them. And her husband is kind of an impediment. He is very, very strict. Um, I think my feeling about him is that he was so upset and really just his equilibrium. He was a teacher. He had a very um, regular order of how things work. He taught. He came home. There was dinner. There were the boys. And that all got destroyed. And he, Etta was able to be strong and maintain strength and keep on, but he, he kind of fell behind. That was sad. It was sad, and that was the character, the father character was the hardest one for me to get to know uh, because I felt a little bit repelled by him at the beginning. You know, I had to find where his goodness was and where his vulnerabilities were before I could really write him and do him justice, I think. And so that took a while to get into his own eyes and sort of imagine what the world might have looked like to him. And how did you do your research? So you had your family, um, your uh, family writings, pictures. What about um, the research about the war in general and how, you know, how the tide turned once, you know, once the Russians defeated the Germans and um, what it was like. The, one of the, the parts that got me the most was the firestorm. Mm -hmm. I think um, if you've read Slaughterhouse-Five, you know that um, that Kurt Vonnegut book, you know that the novel focuses on the firestorm of Dresden and how Dresden mm -hmm. was destroyed. But I guess since that's all I've read about it, I thought it only happened in Dresden. I didn't know that the, al you know, that the Allies 
did it, this type of bombing elsewhere? How, how did you, how and where did you do your research? A lot of research, uh, both in terms of books, books written in English, books written in German about the Hitler Youth, about the fire bombings, uh, about just daily life, uh, the sort of final moments of the war, the fight in the city of Würzburg. Würzburg was firebombed about a month after Dresden, actually, and it's a much smaller city, so the casualties were lower. But in terms of the actual destructive power, a greater part of the city of Würzburg was destroyed than almost any other of the cities. You know, um, the Allies were really aiming at the German population centers, the civilian centers at that point, I think to destroy morale and try to end the war more quickly. Uh -huh. And I'm not so sure it really worked. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a reasonable, possible decision to make, I suppose, but in, in the case of Würzburg, the city was just leveled in large parts, but the Germans, rather than give up, ended up fighting for the rubble. And fighting in the rubble was much harder for the Allies than it would have been to sort of fight in the city before it was destroyed. So the final fight scenes in the city of Würzburg, the firebombing, all of that was based on research uh, from contemporary newspaper articles, books written in German in the 1950s that talked about it. And I actually found the city journal. Uh, every year, the, the city of Würzburg would write a chronicle about what happened the previous year. And so I got the one that had been published in 1946 that described in fastidious detail the bodies, how they tried to deal with all the bodies and how they tried to find you know, survivors and all of that. And so it was a lot of research. Uh, also, I found old CDs of radio shows, really? of the German radio shows, which was very hard to find. I watched a lot of the newsreels that are remarkably available on YouTube. So Yosef, the father, became obsessed with going to the movie house to watch the newsreels. And I was able to watch week by week the newsreels that he would have watched that particular week. Oh, how valuable is yes. that to set up the whole thing? Because there, I thought that part was almost um, playful in that um, he had been conscripted to help out um, with the war effort, even though he was older, because they were taking any men mm -hmm. at this point that were older than, you know, eight, and any men that were of any age. Yes. And, but he was getting confused, and he wasn't quite, he wasn't up to the task. But he didn't want to tell anybody that he that they told him he wasn't needed anymore. So he snuck off to the movies, mm -hmm. just like kind of a little kid was exactly. would have done. And but the fact that you saw those newsreels, that's just amazing. So your your ability to speak and read German must have been invaluable in in writing the book. Yes, thanks to my mom. Yes, absolutely, it was invaluable because a lot of those sources just aren't available in English. I mean, there's a fair number of books written in English about the fire bombings, but the German ones are more particular about the city that I was interested in and gave me a little bit more detail. I have a complete list, or a relatively complete list, of helpful sources on my website if people are interested in seeing that. Oh, that's great, we'll put that up. Um, I'm just, we're running out of time, so I just want to um, ask one more question, and it's that um, I have noticed because I'm in a lot of book clubs, I write reviews, that um, many people who like historical fiction, um, the men tend to like anything about battles and, and armor and tanks, and the women seem to be very intrigued by concentration camps. 
I mean, if they put Auschwitz in the title, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sell like hotcakes. What do you, I always thought that was kind of strange. What do you attribute that to? Well, I mean, I think the stories are so compelling and so tragic. I mean, obviously, the, the horrors of that regime and the millions of people who were killed. Uh, so if you have a story that shows someone defying the regime and trying to be heroic, I think that that speaks to people, and I think it's, it's, it's heartwarming and it's, it's heartening in a way to see that and to read about those stories. Even though those were you know, very rare, exceptional individuals, you still like to see those stories. And I think the military aspect, I mean, my dad uh, loved to read military history, you know, and I, I think you know, that, that has its appeal as well. Um, so I, I can see the appeal of both of those, you know. Well, I think um, your characters are completely heroic. Even the dad who was, like you say, he was kind of hard to take, just to still want the best for your family and not to become a, you know, not to have started out as a fanatic, but just trying to survive. Um, I think this, your book is compelling for everybody, but um, especially for people who appreciate beautiful writing, compelling characters, and a story that just, you know, gets into your heart and squeezes it. I think it's, it's such a beautiful book, and I'm so glad that I had a chance to read it and that I have a chance to introduce it to readers and listeners and that you've come all the way down from New Hampshire <laughs> today to be with me in the studio, which is wonderful, too. So thank you so much, Annette. I'm so glad you came in. Oh, thank you, Eileen. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Viewers and listeners, uh, as serious a subject and as beautiful a book as The Vanishing Sky was. We're gonna do about a 350 degree turn for the September show where my friend Peter is going to be with me and he has compiled a collection of dog obituaries. I know that sounds ridiculous after this show, but seriously, they are beautifully written. You'll probably cry like I did when I read them and uh, I hope you'll stick around and join me from the serious to the silly, and the silly and loving for both books. So uh, thanks for joining me today and have a good evening.